Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Ashok Gupta. He's an internationally renowned speaker, filmmaker, a health practitioner. His bio says that he's dedicated his life to supporting people through chronic illnesses and helping them to achieve their potential. And Ashok himself has had some uh, difficulty with chronic fatigue syndrome and uh, you know some other issues the past 25 years. Um, he's now engaged in neurological research, which we'll get into. So Ashok, thanks for coming. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Lovely to be here. Yeah. If you would, tell me a bit about your background. Of course. Yes. So my background to in, my interest in treating chronic illness was very personal, uh, in fact. So when I was at university, I was studying uh, as an undergrad at Cambridge University in the UK. I went to India, got a stomach bug, and I came back to university. And I could just not function. I mean, um, I couldn't uh, go out. I couldn't study correctly. I was often housebound or bedbound. And I had something called ME or chronic fatigue syndrome. And for me, it was like a brick wall in front of me. You know, my life's over. You know, people telling me that there's no way through this. There's no way you can get better. And it was a very you know, depressing time, a very challenging time. And that's what then sparked my interest. Say, right, I really want to understand what causes chronic illnesses, chronic conditions, which are you know, misunderstood. And modern science finds it difficult to really understand what's going on with these conditions. And that really yeah. sparked my quest uh, for the last two, two or three decades to try and understand them at a deeper level. Well, I understand if you're feeling terrible and everyone tells you there's nothing you can do, of course you'd feel hopeless and you've got to fix it yourself. That's, yeah, that's a common story, common background story. Yes, I think a lot of people who've made discoveries have had to. And necessity is the uh, birthplace of all creativity, as it were. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the mother of invention. Mother of invention. So, uh, are you healthy now and for how long? And then we'll get into maybe some details on what you did. Uh, yes, so I've been healthy now for uh, the last 20 years or so. And that's when I fully recovered. And uh, since then, I've set up a clinic, uh, published various medical papers on the subject of what causes these conditions. And we've been treating yeah, thousands of people around the world uh, with these various conditions. But myself, I have managed to retrain my brain fully. Uh, so I don't have any of those hints of any illness coming back. But at the same time, I make sure that I live a healthy lifestyle to, to keep up that health. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So is your focus chronic fatigue? And you, you refer to it as ME. What is that? So ME stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is quite a mouthful. Um, but it's been shortened to ME. And these days, it's very difficult to know what the differences are. So some people believe there are a difference between chronic fatigue syndrome and ME, but they're often bundled together. So chronic fatigue syndrome is probably the title more referenced in the US, but people call it ME-CFS. And if people don't understand what that is, it's I, I describe it as your worst day of flu times 10. You know, so body aches, feeling really exhausted, uh, various different symptoms, including swollen glands, uh, immune symptoms. And I believe that that particular illness is caused by an overstimulation of the nervous system and immune system. But we treat a wide variety of similar conditions. So we treat fibromyalgia, 
chemical and mold sensitivities, and other mysterious illnesses such as MCAS, uh, mast cell activation, illnesses which the doctor, uh, mainstream medicine, doesn't really uh, have an answer for or is able to treat effectively. And we call these collection of different illnesses NICs, neuroimmune conditioned syndromes. So neuro, because they have their birthplace in, in the nervous system and especially the brain. Immune, because we believe there's aspects of the immune system being over-triggered. Conditioned, because we believe it's a learnt reaction in the brain as a defensive response. And syndrome, because each patient has a unique collection of symptoms according to their genetic or physiological vulnerabilities. So we believe that that term covers a whole suite uh, of different illnesses that um, we'll talk about. Wait, so a learned condition, in what respect do you mean? When we say learnt or conditioned, what we mean is that uh, an analogy which might be useful is this idea of hardware versus software problems. So mainstream medicine is very good at treating what we might call hardware problems in a kind of reductionist capacity, where things physically go wrong that can be measured and they are fixed and solved. But there's now this modern illness or modern illnesses that I call more software problems, where the brain gets stuck in a type of response that is no longer appropriate to the environmental conditions. It was appropriate at one stage or one uh, point in the past, but is now longer appropriate. And an analogy, which I'm sure people are fully aware of, is PTSD, where in a particular situation in a war zone, somebody had a physical reaction, an anxiety reaction, which was totally appropriate to the threat level involved. But even once that veteran comes back to civilian life, their body still responds as if they are back in that war zone. And we've taken that analogy and said that actually PTSD is a very small part of the overall uh, training or learned condition responses the brain goes through. And at a physiological level, uh, many illnesses are caused by this acquired response or learned response. So, okay, in regards to PTSD for a moment, what, so someone, I guess, would have been in war or maybe they were abused as a kid. Now they have PTSD when certain situations arise. And like you said, it's a learned response. And I know people that have PTSD, you know, for various reasons. What does the training look like to get people out of that response pattern? Right. So uh, our treatment is called, in fact, amygdala and insular retraining. And we know from a lot of research that a lot of PTSD symptoms um, and the condition is often caused by an overreactivity of the amygdala part of the brain. And so if we kind of take a step back with conditions like PTSD and the NICs that we treat, it is about teaching the brain that we are no longer in a threatening environment. Now, with PTSD, that might be more the kind of psychological retraining, which uh, obviously a psychologist or psychiatrist may take someone through in combination with some certain types of medications. But with a physiological response, it's slightly different because with a physiological response, the thing that you are afraid of or the thing that the brain is reacting to is the very symptoms in the body themselves causing a vicious cycle. So in that type of physiological traumatic response, the brain has learned that the body is in danger. And each time it detects a symptom in the body, the brain decides that that's dangerous. It then triggers the immune system and the nervous system, which creates more symptoms in the body, which feed back to the brain, the hypervigilant brain, causing that type of vicious uh, circle or vicious reaction um, in, in the body. What are some of these physical symptoms? When you, I mean, PTSD, I have thought it's, you know, it's pretty much in the brain, but um, what physically would happen in the body that would instruct the brain to, to go into this state? 
when the amygdala gets triggered and the rest of the defensive structures in the brain as a result of PTSD, there's a huge amount of uh, physiological changes. So obviously increase in sympathetic response. So heart rate increases, uh, blood pressure, sweating, digestion is turned off and detoxification processes have turned off. And that physiological response in the body, often in PTSD and extreme anxiety, feeds back to the brain that we are in danger, doubling the PTSD response. Do you see? So when so an emotional an emotion has both a cognitive aspect and a physiological aspect, and both of those combine to work someone up into more and more of a reaction, which is then often results in a panic attack, for instance, where it's a, a culmination of the brain and the body reacting to each other. Okay, so the emotional response makes you feel a certain way, like your stomach falls out, you know, you feel nauseous, or like you said you're sweating, or you feel your breathing starts to increase. And that is like a, a reinforcing cycle. Then when those things happen, your emotional response maybe amps up in response to that. Exactly, which is why PTSD and extreme anxiety and panic are notoriously tricky to treat because of this cumulative effect of the, the brain and the body interacting and reinforcing each other. Yes. Hmm, okay. Um, are there physiological based PTSD conditions that are just, that are not emotional? I mean, are there, I mean, I'm sure there is, there's probably a range of conditions where something happens physically in the body and then maybe that triggers an emotional response and then it reinforces itself and escalates. Uh, yes. I think what might help answer that question is if I, just very briefly go through the hypothesis of what, how these conditions start, and then I can then it will talk to the to your question. Sure. Um, so if you think about why we're here, if you ask the, the kind of biggest question of all, why are we here? <laughs> from a philosophical perspective, we can answer that question, or we can answer it from a scientific perspective, which is that we're here because over millions of years of evolution through all of nature, this immune system and this nervous system that we've inherited is designed to keep us alive and pass on our genes to the next generation, right? So we are survival machines. That is the number one priority of our brains and our bodies. And if you look at, like, let's say, the last couple of hundred years, we're suddenly living life very differently to the way perhaps we were living in the past. So we're living in boxes, indoors, sitting down, sedentary, staring at screens, getting stressed. And so our systems already had this predilection towards defending, or having a pro-inflammatory response. And then let's say someone is very stressed emotionally and they get a flu. Let's take the example of flu, because most of us can relate to that. We often find that the immune system's effectiveness is low, right? And it takes longer for us to shake off the symptoms of flu. And in that moment, because we now, oh, it's very clear to us that many people die of flu every year, and it is life-threatening. The brain can go into this hyper-defense response where it feels that actually, our livelihood is under threat, our lives are under threat. We need to over trigger the immune system and the nervous system to make sure that we overcome this flu virus, then eventually the flu virus may be fought off. But that experience was so traumatic for the brain, that it's left a legacy in the brain, which the brain now believes that anything that reminds it of flu, anything that reminds it of the original sensitizing event or the original situations, that indicates danger. And we must overstimulate the immune system and nervous system just to err on the side of caution, just to make sure we survive. So even once the flu virus is gone, uh, in the case of MECFS, or let's take in the case of pain syndromes, fibromyalgia, it might be a car accident or a, a localized pain that generalized. Whatever the trigger was initially, 
the brain starts responding as if we are still in that dangerous environment when we were highly stressed and we had a physical trigger. So the brain keeps overstimulating these two systems, creating the symptoms in the body, which then feed back to the brain that we're in danger and create this vicious cycle of a response. And that's our underlying hypothesis as to what causes a lot of these kind of chronic conditions. And our brain retraining or neuroplasticity approach is to train the brain that we are no longer in that original sensitizing event, that we are safe, and there is no no need to respond to the symptoms in the body or pain signals um, or exposures to various chemicals or or mold situations. So that's where the, the, the brain retraining comes in to reset that system. And it almost is the equivalent of rebooting the computer, as it were, to make sure that those old software bugs are removed and the system returns back to homeostasis. Well, I understand in part, but I mean, how do you know if it's really the brain's fault versus a physiological problem? You know, like if I found a lump on my, you know, my arm and I had, you know, it was some kind of melanoma, let's say, lit to melanoma. Okay. I get it cleared up. And then I discover a year later, a lump on my arm and I go, oh no. And I, I think, what if it's back? And then I just freak out and, you know, I'm really upset. I mean, that's one way with a response that's maybe valid. But another way is, let's say I get, um, you know, times of day where I'm just like flat out exhausted, you know, or or sorry, there's periods of time where I'm exhausted for like two weeks and I get over when I feel fine. Now it's, you know, three months later, I start to feel the same thing. And I think, oh no, I hope it's not coming back. This, this, you know, fatigue for weeks and weeks. I mean, how do you differentiate that from, from stuff that actually is controlled by the brain? Right. So our hypothesis applies to a, a certain set of conditions, such as the one we've, we've mentioned, fibromyalgia, MECFS. And th- in those particular conditions, there's a huge amount of uh, brain scan and imaging uh, information, which shows us a lot of abnormalities in the brain. Yeah. Now, there are many abnormalities in many different conditions, but these are quite specific, uh, which seem to indicate a malfunction in the processing of signals coming from the viscera, coming from the body, and a lack of inhibition um, in the brain. Now, to speak to your point about what happens if I feel fatigue later down the line, in these particular conditions, generally someone doesn't, it, they do have ups and downs, um, but the level of, and the severity of that fatigue is is very intense. It, it stops them from being able to function day to day. So situations where people are feeling the normal levels of fatigue are probably down to lifestyle changes or ups and downs in mood or you know other things that may happen in life. But with these conditions, um, that learnt response is very severe and intense. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And you see similar levels of abnormalities in the, in the brain function. Oh, so you're thinking that for chronic fatigue or some of these conditions, the MEFCS, I believe we called it, you're thinking that um, when someone feels like the condition's coming back, that it can be stopped if they do a series of, you know, I don't know, exercises or thoughts or breathing or whatever your protocol is? Yes, exactly. So many of our patients are able to fend off a relapse of the condition by investing back in the tools to make sure that they stay healthy. Okay, so they're able, we train them to recognize when those danger signals are coming back, when the brain is going back into that default response of over responding to a situation and how to fend that off through brain retraining and some of the supporting uh, techniques that we have. Yes, absolutely. Well, can you give an example of um, 
a scenario, you know, without naming names, obviously, but maybe mm-hmm. a specific scenario that comes to mind and what the training looked like for that person and what happened? Of course, yes. So I take the example of um, MECFS. Um, so we have uh, a lot of clients who are able to successfully retrain and gain their health, get back to 80, 90% health, right? And then we say that final 10% is training your body, rehabilitating your body back into normal life. So that means going back into a normal job, a normal job or a normal uh, studying, whatever that may look like. And when they do that, because their brain is sensitive, they often find an over-response to the stressful environment. They may get stressed easily or get anxious easily. And some of the symptoms begin to come back because remember the brain remembers the very first time that it got ill, where there was a lot of stress, perhaps emotional stress, chronic stress. And it thinks, oh dear, if I experience stress again, that might compromise my ability to survive. So I must over-trigger the nervous system and immune system. So we train uh, our patients to recognize when they're getting stressed and in stop a relapse from happening in its tracks by deeply investing in the tools. And so the main brain retraining technique is a seven-step process to recognize that unconscious signaling, which we're often not aware of, and retrain it towards uh, a kind of safety response. And we have supporting techniques such as mindfulness, meditation, breathing techniques, which then reinforce that neuroplasticity because we know the calmer the brain is, the easier it is to rewire the brain. So that would be an example of how someone might have a relapse but is able to stop it in its tracks. Well, I mean, this would be useful, I would think, for many conditions. Like, you know, um, if someone has cancer, and I know from personal experience, this is like a, it's like a horrible thing, you know. And then you're, for a period of time, sometimes maybe forever, you're afraid, you know, whatever comes back. And I, even when someone, for instance, does have cancer, you know, they, I'm sure a lot of times they feel like they're going to die, you know, that day or they're going to imminently die all the time. That preys on your mind. So it seems like this kind of training, even if you can't get rid of the condition and the condition is real, do you think that it would be able to lower the person's stress level and maybe, you know, not perversely, but in a good way, help them get through it because they're not stressed. They're not flooding their body with these stress hormones and making it worse for themselves. You're absolutely right, Richard. In fact, many of our clients have gone on to use these tools later in life when they've had cancer or they've had, you know, uh, some serious, a serious stroke, for instance, and are worried about it coming back. And they notice those same anxiety patterns and defensive patterns uh, causing them to feel weak physically, mentally, emotionally, and they need to come out of that vicious cycle. So illness reminds us of our own mortality. And it's probably one of the biggest triggers for anxiety, which then lowers our immunity. So I agree that whether it's cancer or diabetes or any kind of illness which compromises the immune system, um, actually being able to strengthen your mind, feel more positive is always going to have a positive effect. And we see this even in medical trials with the placebo effect. Now, we prefer to call it the the self-healing effect. We believe it's a form of neuroplasticity and brain retraining at a mild level. So why is it that in studies, the sham treatment, there's a 40% benefit, you know, 40% of them get better. And in the active group, you might get 60% of people get better. That shows us that when there is a positive anticipation of health, that is an unconscious, subtle form of brain retraining, teaching the brain to not trigger uh, responses unnecessarily. And uh, there's a strengthening of that parasympathetic response 
to enable healing, repair, digest, and a strong immune system. Well, you know what will be super useful now is, uh, and I know this is happening, you know, with COVID and everything, someone mm. coughs or sneezes or starts to get sick and they, I'm, I, I guarantee, God knows how many people are like, oh no, what if it's COVID? What if I die? And they get, you know, they get really nervous and upset. Um, do you have, I, I don't know, even on this podcast for like a minute, do you have a, a demonstration of the technique for someone that may be feeling that, you know, that would be yes. listening? Because I'm sure yes. that that's happening constantly right now. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, so let's go through a, a very short exercise. So when we notice that thought, so there's a before anything can change or we can have transformation, awareness is always key. Awareness of what is going on in our minds. So we become the observer and the witness of what's going on in our minds. So when we notice that we are unnecessarily worrying or becoming paranoid, or we can feel that anxiety coming in, the first thing to do is... Uh, we'll call this a 4S technique, 4S. So the first S stands for stop. So we might physically in our minds say stop, or we might just take a slow, deep breath in. And the second word is surrender and let go. The second S is surrender and let go. So let's just do that now. Imagine we're having a thought about COVID and how it might impact on our lives and worried about people around us. The first S is stop. So we say stop in our mind. The second S is surrender and let go. So we let's just take a slow, deep breath in from the stomach with the eyes closed. So let's close our eyes, take a deep breath in. And with a smile, slowly breathe out through the nose, very slowly with a smile. And that can just help bring us to a place of surrender, letting go, acceptance. Now, keeping our eyes closed, the third S is shift perspective, which simply means with our eyes closed, what comforting message can we give ourselves to help us feel better about the situation with COVID? So as an example, we might say to ourselves, look, you know, 99.7% of people survive. It has a very low or relatively low mortality rate. Or it might be the chances of me actually contracting it are very low. Um, certainly in Europe, maybe one in 100 people you know, have it. Or it may be another message we might tell ourselves, such as, you know, whatever happens, let's focus on what we can control. We can't control whether we get it necessarily, but we can control looking after our immune system. So let's exercise, let's eat well, let's meditate, let's do what we can to take control of our health. So that's the third S, shifting perspective. So why don't we have a go at thinking about what message would help us feel better? Let's spend just 10 or 20 seconds just thinking about what message we'd like to give ourselves right now. And then holding on to that message we've given ourselves, the fourth S is substitute, which simply means we keep our eyes closed. We repeat that message, but we imagine that we feel it in our body. So we think, let's say our message is, look, it's got a very low mortality rate and there's a very low chance that I'm actually going to catch this. That's a belief that we hold on to. We take a deep breath in and with a smile, we imagine how we would feel if we had fully integrated that belief. So how do we feel if we have let go, we feel calm and relaxed? So we might say things like, I feel calm and relaxed about COVID. Or I let go and let go of trying to control what happens. I feel calm and at peace with COVID. And with a smile, we take a deep breath in. And we smile and we let go and we imagine what it would feel like if 
by saying, I am calm and relaxed about COVID. And let's take another deep breath in. And in our minds, we say, I feel calm and relaxed about COVID. And then just imagine what that feels like to feel that way, using the power of our imagination with a smile. And then holding on to that feeling, we just gently open our eyes. Yeah, so welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. What at, at what state would something like that have a really hard time working? Like, okay, so when someone's getting into a state of being upset, um, you know, I'm sure there's different levels and phases. Like, you know, when I've been upset about something, sometimes I'm, I'm at a peak. Sometimes I'm only a little bit upset. It's the start of it. So is the, the idea to jump in as soon as you can before it escalates physically and mentally? Uh, yes, that's one thing. But the key success factor is repetition because the brain, our unconscious mind is like a precocious seven-year-old child. <laughs> you may tell this part of your brain once that we're not in danger, but as far as your brain is concerned, it is enacting a defensive response for your survival or for your protection. So it's repetition that works. So it's telling your mind again and again and again that there's nothing to worry about. And let's take the example. Uh, what would you guess is the, the biggest fear in the population? Oh, right now? Yeah, what, what would you, yeah. What, perhaps not right now, but in general, uh, when they do surveys, what, what do you imagine is the, is the kind of biggest fear in the population? Well, you'd, you'd kind of imagine it's the fear of death. Whereas actually the number one that comes out of surveys is fear of public speaking. <laughs> mm, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Um, and so what's interesting is in the similar way, when you're standing in, up in front of an audience and talking, you try to reassure yourself once, but you have to reassure yourself many times. So it's the repetition of that technique and imagining feeling calm and relaxed and imagining again and imagining again that eventually retrains your brain through neuroplasticity to no longer react to that situation. So that's an example of very mild brain retraining. But obviously what we do with chronic illness is a lot more deep and profound. Okay, gotcha. Is there any other kind of training if you're, again, in a very amped up state versus uh, only slightly amped up? We find the most powerful techniques are breathing and meditation techniques. So when we have a certain emotion and feel revved up or anxious, that shifts the pattern of breathing that we experience. So when we feel anxious, how do we feel? We start breathing faster and more shallow from the upper chest. The heart starts beating. But interestingly, there's a feedback loop. So if we learn to breathe slowly and deeply from the diaphragm, that sends a feedback message back to our unconscious brain that we are in more safety or there's nothing to worry about. So regular deep breathing techniques, slow rhythmic deep breathing can help calm us down. And that we can do for a few minutes before meditation. And meditation, once people regularly practice, is the most powerful way of both calming ourselves down after a stressful day or stressful reaction, but also preventative, preventing us from getting stressed in the first place. And, um, you know, there's been many studies done, uh, but the most groundbreaking study that should have been front page news around the world was a study published by Harvard five years ago, which found that um, when they followed people for a year in terms of their usage of medical facilities, doctors, hospitals, then they taught them to meditate and then they followed them for another year. And this was a massive study. This is 5000 people. They found there was a 42 percent reduction in the usage of medical facilities, like seeing a doctor or going to a hospital. Oh, Can you wow. imagine 42 percent. And if, if that was a drug that Pfizer came up with or <laughs> GlaxoSmithKline, that would be the number one miracle drug of the 21st century. And yet 
it exists, it's been scientifically proven, and we have it for free available every day. It just requires that 20 minutes of investment each day. And we can halve our chances of illness and uh, boost our well-being. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Mm. Are there, um, I mean, how do people respond to the techniques? Do some, are they just incorrigible? They just, it, it just doesn't work for them. They can't calm themselves. Uh, are there advanced techniques for certain people in certain situations? Like, what does it look like? Uh, yes. Yeah, so like anything, it doesn't work for everybody. Uh, but as you know, uh, we just had a study published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine on our neuroplasticity approaches for fibromyalgia. Um, and that showed, uh, you know, a really good result with a 40, within eight weeks, a 40% reduction in fibromyalgia scores, but none in the control group, which was relaxation techniques. And so we know that not everybody responds. We find about 80 to 90% of people improve using our treatment and around two thirds of patients uh, get an 80 to 100% recovery. So that was a clinical study we published about 10 years ago um, on our uh, protocol, uh, which was a clinical audit. So it really depends on, uh, we find the critical success factor is employment of the techniques, because we live in a society where we expect uh, that we'll take some medicine, some pharmaceuticals, and that's going to heal us, and there's no effort required. But with a lot of these modern illnesses that we're facing, it does require the investment of time, no doubt, and a sense of belief that you're moving forward and consistently retraining the brain. Because if you retrain the brain, but then lapse, the brain goes back to its default responses quite easily. So making sure that um, we keep ourselves healthy, we continue to retrain is an important part of, um, of the program. How, how often is the training necessary? Is it should, I guess it should be a daily regimen just forever, and that's not so bad, or what? Uh, so we find that in terms of the full protocol, um, generally it's between three to three to nine months, get someone to that 80 to 100 percent recovery. And then after that, they don't have to use the full protocol. But the regular breathing and meditation as a preventative measure is incredibly important. So making long term shifts in our behavior, make sure that people stay well, because people who are prone to these kinds of illnesses have a more reactive amygdala, a more reactive brain. They tend to be hypersensitive. And therefore, uh, a chronic stressful situation, there is always a chance that it re-triggers those default defensive responses. So staying well is long-term breathing and meditation and, and moderating stress, for sure. And uh, for you, are you the person that's done it the longest consistently, this program, would you say? or? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we were the original neuroplasticity program. We have uh, been doing this since 1999, and we published online in 2007 in terms of the, the the program being available online so we've kind of been going longest i think in terms of this approach and um we've consistently refined it uh to see what works for most people most of the time and we completely rejuvenated the protocol uh, a couple of years ago and now we're getting tremendous uh, results with it so our, our next steps are really to do large-scale clinical interventions large-scale trials to really you know finally prove that this is an effective way of dealing with a a whole host of different illnesses. Excellent. Hmm. Very, very cool. So what's the best way for people to uh, get access to the training? You know, if, I would hope they don't have to be local to you. Um, you know, where can they go to get more information and to find out about it? So our protocol is now available fully online. So people can go to our website, which is guptaprogram.com, G-U-P-T-A program.com. And there they can sign up for a free trial. So you can, you can take our uh, program for a test spin, as it were. 
uh, sign up for the free trial, have access to lots of free videos and exercises, and then see if it's something that could be useful. And then people can sign up for the full protocol, which is 15 interactive video sessions, audios, a workbook, and a support group uh, where you can ask questions, as well as weekly webinars with myself. So there's a lot of support that we give people to help them recover. And until we get the large scale clinical trials uh, to finally you know, definitively prove that this is an effective treatment, we offer a one year money back guarantee, <laughs> which not many, not many people do. So you can use the protocol for up to a year. And if, it's, if you don't notice improvement, you can return it, get your money back, no questions asked. So we're gonna continue with that until we get the kind of phase three trials. Yeah, no, that's excellent. Very cool. Okay, so again, uh, the website where they can go to get the information of the program? Yes, it's guptaprogram.com. Okay, G-U-P-T-A, got it. That's correct, yeah. Great. Well, Ashok, um, as a last item, uh, are there other conditions that you're looking to use this program or modify it to solve, and what are they? Uh, Are you busy enough with this stuff? (laughs) Well, we believe that this is the dawn of a new medicine a new era in medicine where so far we've been treating, as we say, hardware problems, but now is the dawn of dealing with these software problems. So headaches, migraines, uh, hay fever, asthma, all of these illnesses are being caused by an abnormal reaction in the brain and the body to our environment. And if we can learn how to harness control of these reactions, then we can begin to calm these reactions down and get back to health. So we've had people successfully use our protocol for migraines. We've even had anecdotal evidence of uh, people being able to soften their hay fever as a result of this. So, you know, any reaction to our environment, whether it's reactions to chemicals or electrical fields or mold, all of these illnesses we already successfully treat, uh, but we want to branch out into some of these uh, conditions that people have felt, well, you've, once you have hay fever, you've got it for life. No one really thinks about, actually, you could retrain your brain to no longer respond in this way. It um, would be good is if you could do the, um, oh, I'm just getting old thought process and stop that process and turn it around for people. <laughs> Even for us, there might be some limitations there. <laughs> I don't know if we can uh, lengthen the telomeres uh, with this with this reprogramming, but uh, happy to give it a shot. <laughs> right on. Well, very good. Ashok, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been um, it's been really good to talk to you. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for inviting me, Richard. And uh, yeah, good luck with everything. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.